This is Existential, the podcast that reminds us that we're human first before we're anything else. And from that place, we can hear each other's stories and experiences as we wrestle with issues of justice, faith, and culture. I'm your host, Corey Leak. Thanks for listening. What's up, folks? I'm actually today recording at Hush Harbor Studios in Berkeley, California, and I've got my man, Ben McBride, with me today. Ben is a national activist. He has been involved in just moving the ball forward with anti-gun violence and has really made a real impact in the city of Oakland when it comes to reducing gun violence. He's also a husband and a father to three teenage daughters just like me, so no wonder we've bonded (laughs) the way that we have. So, man, I'm just really glad to have you here. Thanks for being on the podcast. For sure. Yeah, that's what's up. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, so you've been actually right now traveling the world with this this idea of making people aware of our common sense of belonging, mm. you know, with the yeah. belonging circle. So can you talk about that work or what you're doing right now? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think kind of coming out of some of the movement work over the last several years that I've been on that journey around that, one of the things that I've really been experiencing is the tension around what does it mean to change the world And what will it require us to do and to become to change the world? And I started realizing that even in our movement spaces, we were kind of becoming caricatures of the very thing that we were critiquing. Right. And so it really started making me first on a personal level have to ask myself, who do I need to become? Then that Mm. led out to a wider circle. Well, who do the people that I hang with and see myself belonging to? Who do we need to become? And then trying to figure out how do those groups and the groups that we see as the other who do we all need to become to belong? And so I just kind of find myself trying to search out the truth wherever it lies. I certainly don't have it all, but I believe that a little piece of truth here and there kind of makes it up. So we're getting the opportunity both kind of in California, across the country, and now journeying over into Europe and, you know, spent some time a few years ago in a couple stints over in Israel, Palestine, mm. and just trying to learn and listen from the ways that people are making really brave decisions to become and belong in their own settings. Yeah, man. So that's interesting to me because I know that, like, what I feel sometimes from black folks that are involved in, like, trying to promote justice and and racial justice in particular is a tension that exists where people are like, can black folks and white folks really get along? Mm you know, this experiment that we've done in America, should we even be doing it, right? And it seems to me that the idea of belonging and what you've been working towards would say, yeah, we can actually all get along, but we've got to put some work into to understanding what it means to belong yeah. together. So what, what have you found, like, on your journeys and your work about belonging and how we do that? Well, if there's anything I found is that... Uh a lot of folks get triggered by the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> that that I have absolutely found is that it is a triggering conversation. And um, and I get it, or I think I'm getting it a little bit at a time, you know. In the conversation with black folks around belonging, people are like, all right, well, white people just gave you some money. So white people must have gave you some money. And, and so now he's, he's going to do the whole kumbaya thing and, and bring us all together because some white people bought him out and 
then for the white folks, they're like, oh, okay, cool, like he's gonna be the one that's gonna help us do this thing until I start having conversations about systemic and structural change. And then they're like, oh, I thought we were just gonna <laughs> hug it out in the parking lot. So, you know, um, I won't turn you to my therapist, you know, there, there certainly are some, some dark and lonely days, but I think, you know, um, I think what I'm learning is that um, I don't know that it's a choice that we have a choice around whether we're going to work it out or not. Hmm. We're not going anywhere. Um, unless people are talking about leaving the land that we're on, we gotta cohabit the same space. By 2050, we'll be a majority minority country. And so things are shifting. Power will shift. Systems and structures will shift. The question is, how do we make meaning hmm. of all of those changes that are happening and kind of what I'm asking of myself and other black folks and other people of color is like, is our end game to become the new white people? Mm. Is that the goal? And like, and who gets to say what that even looks like? Is it the bourgeois Negroes? <laughs> is it, we certainly know it's not gonna be the loved ones because all these bourgeois woke Negroes, okay, great, I'm a little bourgeois Negro too, grew up in the, you know, little Christian version of the Huxtable family without the Bill Cosby problem. Right, 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 right. I grew up with all of that and, and so I'm a bourgeois kind of Negro of sorts, so like, are we running it? We know that the loved ones that have been involved in violence ain't running it and all of us kind of woke folks don't got 10 phone numbers of the loved ones we talk about and mm. we cape for, we don't have eight numbers in our phone. Mm. So like, what is this whole, what do we, what do we mean? What do we, what's our end game? So, I mean, I, I think we have, and our ancestors have found a way and laid out some journey for us around how we continue to answer this question. I don't think our answer is gonna be Dr. King and Fannie Lou Hamer's answer. It won't be W.E. Du Bois' answer. It won't be Nat Turner's answer. We got to figure out what our answer is yeah. in our moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think we can learn from all of those traditions, but I think trying to mimic the past is a lose-lose situation because we're in a very different reality. Yeah, man. Like, I love once I heard you do a message about the cycle of uh, exile. Mm. Uh, and, and empire and exodus and exodus and uh -huh. so you got exile exodus and empire uh -huh. and how you know if we're like you said earlier if we're not careful we will become an empire yeah i mean what, what's the purpose of leaving the promised land if you go become pharaoh on your sojourn right like that's made my little drop line yeah right? yeah yeah and, and my thing i mean for me it's a it's more than the talking point it's it's a real thing like for me to become who white people as a power structure, not human beings of European descent, but as a power structure, if my end game is to become that, no matter if now the police aren't killing me, I have lost my humanity. Yeah, dude. And for me, I'm not pre I don't have no need to preach to others, man. I pastor and preach all the time. I want to compel those that want to listen, but I ain't trying to preach and convert nobody no more. For me, that's a lose-lose. That's not what I want. Mm -hmm. I, I've already seen what whiteness does. Mm -hmm. I don't want to just get the power to be white. Dang. I want to imagine a very different world that is not about understanding power as domination, but actually understanding power as agency, mm -hmm. um, as deep connection, and actually believe that love can be power. Yeah. Rather than yeah. love being seen as weakness. Yeah. You know, so, but I mean, you know, I think there's a journey to be walked. I'm certainly still on the journey of trying to, you know, uh, deconstruct my 
patriarchal ways coming out of the black church and, mm-hmm. and coming out of my family and all of that. So I'm on a journey. My hope is that we could just find ways while we're on our individual journeys. How do we make space for other people to be on their journey as well? Yeah. Now, how do you deconstruct the patriarchal stuff? Because I know for me, I grew up in a similar way. Grew up in black churches, but even growing up in white churches, yeah. the idea is always no, better. <laughs> no right. The idea is always that you, as the man, you run the house. Yeah. You are you the one that hears from God. In fact, I remember one of the things that I had a real issue with um, back when you know there was a pastor. I won't say his name. Who went to the White House, but one of the things that he said was. He said, my wife said I shouldn't go, but the Holy Spirit told me to go, so I got to do what the Holy Spirit says, right? Mm-hmm. And so we were raised in that sense of, like, you're the man who God speaks to, and you tell everybody else in your house. So yeah. I've been trying over the last several years to deconstruct that way of thinking, that my wife's not, like, there to just follow me around, mm-hmm. you know? So how have you, how have you deconstructed that, that patriarchy? It's been a journey, you know? Um, I think, you know, my wife and I have been together for 20 two years we've been married for 20 years mm. I think very similar mm. like, yeah, yeah. like you and your wife so we've, yeah. been, we've been rocking a minute so there's some benefits that come from that in the sense of you know you you sleep and hug and fart next to somebody long enough <laughs> you know there's there's some give and take there that just yes. comes yes. by nature of the journey exactly right? seeing each other in in all the different kinds of moments but I think the deconstruction of patriarchy in me uh, has been a journey around like trying to read materials, trying to be in conversation with other black men mm. in some safe spaces around what it means. Because what what I've understood to deconstruct patriarchy for me means I have to actually reconstitute what it means to be a black man mm. in a white racist supremacist society mm. who is suspicious of me and wants to cage or destroy my body. So it's not just so simple as here's the right pronouns or these are the right talking points. I, I live in the skin of a six foot one, 300 pound, dark skinned black body that um, sisters are afraid of and have reason to be because too many people that look like you and I have raped and beat and assaulted our sisters. Mm. Then I got white folks scared of me and I got other people of other races scared of me. So. I'm trying to figure out what does it mean for me to be a black man and have some safety mm-hmm. and ensure that I'm not being a threat, particularly to black women and people that I love. So I have to work that out with a lot of black men. Mm. And then I have to look for the gift of other black women outside of my wife that can help me make meaning of it, recognizing it's not their work. Mm. But I, I don't believe that we can get there on our own. No, so like no when way. people say, do your own work, you know what I'm saying? I actually think that's some bullshit. Keep it all the way real. <laughs> like, do your own work. I, I, I get the theoretical concept. Right. But some of the work that needs to happen is by listening and learning and being in the space with people who you can learn from. Yeah, for sure. You know, so, um, you know, I don't I don't think I'm, I'm batting a thousand with it by far. I mean, I'm trying to be a dad, a husband, working a couple jobs, trying to take care of the family, and... In the spare time, deconstruct patriarchy. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. Well, so, I mean, you and I were talking before, and, and I said, I really want to talk to you about this idea of, like, the super wokeness, mm. you know, because I feel like you are one of the few people I see that actually talks about that aspect of it. You know, mm. it's like we we live in a, in a time where 
it's difficult to know what I say or do that's going to be triggering for someone, mm -hmm. you know? And I don't think, I also, let me say this, I don't think that that's a bad thing. I think, I think that part of recalibrating society and making it more just is us being more sensitive to the people who we've been oppressing all this time. Yeah, yeah. So whether that's people from the LBGTQ community or mm -hmm. black folks or women, that hearing their voices and, and hearing them say, hey, that's harmful to me, that's oppressive to me, I think is good. But I guess my question would be, how do we calibrate this thing? You know, I mean, we wind up split down the middle. One of the examples recently was the situation with Gail King. Yeah, um, that was a mess. Yeah, it was a huge mess. So like, so you got people on, on two sides of a conversation that are kind of talking past each other, but both sides of that particular conversation, because you have black folks and you had victims perhaps of rape or those that are very sensitive to that, mm -hmm both sides of that that were woke that were just going like hey y'all aren't woke enough <laughs> you know what i'm saying so how do we how i mean you can't solve this yeah you know yeah. but how what are your thoughts on it how, how, how do we engage in that yeah you know that that was an interesting thing because i was kind of watching it all from afar mm -hmm. and and digesting it and um you know i've i've learned not to comment online around all these things that are happening. I, I leave that to you and Dre and all the rest of y'all would be our cultural commentators. I can't comment because if I say something because of some of the work I'm doing, if it's, if it's heard the wrong way or if it comes out in an inarticulate way, you know, one of the things I have to be responsible around is, you know, recognizing that intent doesn't always mm. equal impact. So mm. I might be mm. trying to work something out in a Facebook comment that, you know, can be perceived or experienced by someone who's very painful. So mm -hmm. that's why, you know, the, the meme I always put is just Michael Jackson eating the popcorn. I just <laughs> I just sit and read the comments in my hotel room and laugh and, and tell my wife what I really think. But, um, no, I mean, you know, in watching that, it, it's interesting because to me there's like, um, you know, I'm, I'm because I'm somebody who bridges a lot across difference, I try to figure out how to translate what people are saying. Mm. So, like, I know what you said, but if I speak hood, pookie dialect, <laughs> what what was Snoop saying? Not mm. what he said, mm -hmm. but what was he saying? Mm. It was it was in the in the main language. It was dumb as hell what he said. Mm -hmm. It was inarticulate. It was dangerous for black women. It was bad a bad example, a bad way to be responsive. Um, and then also trying to pay attention to like Gail. Um, Mrs. King and trying to figure out what was she trying to say? Mm -hmm. what, was, and what was she trying to get to? Mm -hmm. And some of those things we don't know. And I think that's some of the challenges around some of these dynamics is like Dr. Jennifer Eberhardt's um, Implicit Bias work out of Stanford, another dope black woman broke, wrote the book Bias. And in it she talks about whatever it is that we don't know, our brain fills in with our implicit 100%. bias. Yeah. So the stories that we're all seeing about what's happening between Gail King and 50 Cent and Snoop and all of that is not really what's happening. All of us have a different version of what's actually happening in that mm. scenario in our brains. That's mm -hmm. a combination of what really is happening and how we're making meaning of yes, it all. Yes, right? sure. That's, that's including our 12 and 13-year-old versions of ourselves and all of our baggage that we haven't processed yet with our therapist, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. all, all of that is, is involved <laughs> in it. But like what I what I saw in that was that um, you know I think Snoop is speaking to and for and from a place of patriarchal 
black urban from the hood maleness mm -hmm. that is about defending your loved one mm. to anybody mm -hmm. and using violence yeah. as a way to get safety. Yeah. yeah. So, that, so that what he was doing was really, in my view, now this is my implicit mm -hmm. bias kicking in, and some of my relationships with the loved ones, he was trying to make himself feel safe mm. because he felt under attack because he comes from a, a way of being where his safety is about the loved ones and his homies being safe. Mm. And if they're not safe, I'll shoot you, I'll kill you. I mean, I done sat in Oakland with loved ones that was like, big bruh, I don't give a I'll go take uh, your mama, your grandmama, your kid. I don't care. I'm getting mine. I've had to learn how to translate that. Because initially, you hear that and be like, what? Mm. You you talking about my mama? No, he ain't talking about my mama. He's, he's talking about the only way for him to get safety is by defending people who he thinks has him and using violence to back everybody off. Hmm. So that's how I read what was happening with Snoop and, and 50 and all of them. Now, obviously, you know, at least some Hollywood gangsters now. So, you know, they ain't no, they ain't no real gangsters. I mean, right, 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 right. If you're living in Calabasas, <laughs> you ain't nobody gangster, right? But, and I think, I, I don't, again, this is a part of me checking my patriarchy. I've stopped trying to imagine what's in the minds of black women. Mm -hmm. I want to ask black women. Whether in what's in your mind, or yeah. as other black women, how are you reading it? So, yeah. you know, I, I'm still processing what I think Mrs. King was doing, or Miss King, you know, with her questions and all of that. I was triggered by it, mm -hmm. um, but um, not to the place of becoming violent. So, when I think all the piling on that began to happen comes from us just living in a in a um, be the first to respond, violence based culture. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's what I saw um, happening, and I actually think that's that's one of the big challenges that we're facing going forward. Yeah, um, is, yeah. is that we've all been socialized to be violent, dude. So you've said so much just then. I want to ask about, but I also I, I want to say for the exit. Why? Why? How did I just forget how to say my own podcast? <laughs> <laughs> the existential audience. I I, I want to say um, that for me. The whole, the whole thing was a little bit triggering for me. Also, mm -hmm. my wife and I had a conversation about it, and she she expressed to me how Gail's question is important to mm -hmm. any person that's been a victim of of sexual assault. Mm -hmm. You know that that's a part of Kobe's story and legacy for any person who that is true of. Mm -hmm. I will also say that for me. I felt like that's a story that can be told once we put the man in the ground. Mm -hmm. And he's been in the ground for a while. Mm -hmm. Because my personal feeling was, again, this is me as a, as a, as a man who's never been sexually assaulted, mm -hmm. was that I would not show up to anybody's funeral and bring up the worst thing they've ever done. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a funeral. I'm, during the mourning process, which is what we all were in, during the mourning process, I just felt like it was time to mourn the husband, the father, also bearing in mind the fact that he has a family. He has so he has other children and, and a wife that he left behind that we all need to be sensitive to. So I just kind of felt like I, I understood both sides of it, but my own feeling was was there. And do, do you have any sense as to why you why that was there for you? Like this notion of Let's wait until we get him in the ground before a process should happen. I mean, I was having the same one, yeah. but I'm wondering, like... I just think it's... 
it, it feels like human decency to me. You know, it feels like, you know, my faith journey has led me backwards in a sense back to the originators of, of this Judeo-Christian worldview. Mm. And for them, death was a sacred thing. They actually were, they actually had people who knew how to mourn professionally mm. because the process was that important. Mm. Because they weren't going way back to ancient times. They weren't, they didn't know nothing about no afterlife. Mm -hmm. They weren't like thinking, you know, I'll see you again. They thought that Sheol was it. You go to the grave and that's it. It's over. You're done. That's your. That's the end of your life. So the best I can do is honor you in how I bury you, how I remember you, you know, how we talk about you moving forward, what your name means to the rest of us. So for me, thinking through that lens, I was like, anyone who dies, especially someone who seems to have touched as many lives as Kobe did, granted, yes, there's a whole ugly side. There was a whole ugly side to Dr. King, mm -hmm. you know? So on MLK Day, we don't talk about extramarital stuff. Right, right. You know, so to me, when you're honoring somebody, which is the grief and, and mourning process, there are some things that just don't feel like they are should be a part of the conversation right now. Again, I want to say this very loud and clear, and perhaps, you know, people may be, people may be upset regardless, but the I do want to make sure I say I'm, my perspective on that is a male. You know, and, I, and again, never been a victim of sexual assault. So I do want to be very sensitive to anybody who has been because your lens is totally different than mine. It's what you talked about with implicit bias. We all bring a lens to Absolutely. the conversation. And I guess to, to go deeper into our conversation about wokeness is how do we make space for each other's lenses? Man, so that, that to me, like going back to the first thing that you were asking about some of the work that I've been trying to lead into around belonging, is, is exactly what you just articulated. How do we learn how to make space, not just for each other, but for the lens that we're bringing to the conversation about mm. life? And that as much as I might disagree with your lens, the fact that you have it means it is authentic. Mm. It doesn't mean it's righteous. It doesn't mean, for me, it doesn't mean that it's valuable, but it is authentic. And it's yours. It's yours. Yeah. It's how you see the world. Yeah. And for me to, to, uh, totally deny that, and to just assume that my lens is the lens by which every human experience across different places on the planet should be seen through, to me is one of the deepest expressions of narcissism, and yet. <laughs> We practice it on a daily basis. Especially Christians and, and people saying? with certain religious dogmas. Yeah, man. And, and we can in the movement as well, you know. And so, like, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm, because I was raised in fundamentalism, mm -hmm. I've had to Same. check the fact that, like, I have a fundamentalist way of seeing the world. Mm -hmm. Things are, are either one way or they're another way. Mm. And I swing from one end of the spectrum to the other. Yeah. And I have to check myself sometimes like, okay, hold on. Like, you know, Oscar Grant, when he was murdered in the city of Oakland in 2009, that January one morning, I slept through that movement. Mm -hmm. I was here. I had just moved into the kill zone, my little story, then moved into the kill zone, <laughs> produced the body, ooh, 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 right? Slept through the whole Oscar Grant thing. Mm -hmm. Didn't have eyes to see it, right? Um, I remember Mike, my brother, you know, came by my uh, organization. I was running downtown. I was like, come on, man, there's an Oscar Grant march. Let's go walk with him. 
I was like, walk with him. I was like, man, I don't protest. It's 2009, bro. <laughs> you know, I'm like, man, I, he was like, come on, man, let's just let's just go walk. I didn't go walk for Oscar Grant. I walked because Mike asked me to come walk with mm. him, right? Mm. Now, you fast forward five years later, and I'm on the streets in Ferguson, mm. right? Because I had eyes to see Mike Brown because things happened from 2009 to 2014 that helped change my lens yeah. to help me take the story in differently. But then, I, you know, the last several years after Ferguson, I went on a tear. And if you didn't see the world the way I saw it, and if you won't rocking with the shooters the way that I was or felt like I was, then you won't authentic and you don't got nothing to say to me because mm. I'm the wokest Negro in the world. <laughs> right? So I think I, if I didn't have eyes to see Oscar Grant in 2009, then that says to me in some humility, there must be some people I'm still not seeing in 2020. So yeah. maybe I can learn how to like hold somebody else's lens. Yeah. So, okay. This is where I always feel like the, where the work of this conversation is, is the person who was holding a tiki torch in mm -hmm. Charlottesville mm -hmm. because a person who chooses to hear what you just said and hear this conversation could say, you're basically saying there were good people on both sides. Mm, that's the critique. Right? Mm -hmm. So what, what, is, what do we make of the lens of hate mm -hmm. that people hold towards people in arbitrary ways like whiteness causes people to do? So I would answer there's good people on both sides to say no, there are people on both sides, mm. and neither are good. <laughs> the dude that I follow, wow. a Palestinian rabbi from uh, Nazareth, when when the dude came up to him and said, "Good teacher," he said, "Why do you call me good? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Only yeah. God is good. Yeah, yeah, yeah." So this yeah. notion of there's good people and bad people, man, we all good and bad. You know, for a second I was like, "Who's who's this Palestinian rabbi?" <laughs> like, Wait a minute, is, who's is he? That L L <laughs> I thought, no, I thought you had like, I know you're traveling the world. I'm like, I thought, oh, he got, I want to meet this dude. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I thought we had him in common, you know, but I, I don't want to break up the whole stuff. Nah, but yeah, I mean, you know, to me, I get it. I get it, man. I get it. The, the, the critique. And a part of what I'm holding up is like, um, what my quick answer was when I saw Charlottesville. Man, here go these old dumb racist white folks out here, they luckily I won out there in Charlottesville. I wish me mm -hmm. and Mike would have been out mm -hmm. there. And if mm -hmm. they wanted to throw something, we could throw them. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah, yeah. that, that in my me. anger, I'm going to be just like Snoop. You yeah. old dog face mother who, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And wouldn't nobody be mad with me going off on the white boys and talking about um, what they asked. So right. obviously that's that's what would come out in all of my toxic masculinity and wanting to show I'm tough and, and all of that. And yet what I hold is that these are people on both sides, their perspective their philosophy, their ideology, their orientation is toxic as hell. It's dangerous. Mm -hmm. It's violent. Mm -hmm. It's awful and horrible. And the proof, we got 400 years of proof in the pudding of it. Yes. And we must go after that ideology. We must undo its power in every system and structure. And yet, while we do that, that might mean that at times we have to quarantine those who are most diseased, similar to like the, yeah. the coronavirus or yeah. something right now, right? We yeah. don't want it to spread, so we got to figure out what does it mean to quarantine. But what if because of the coronavirus, folks said, well, let's just go kill everybody right. that has the virus. Right. 
so we can make sure other people don't get sick. Yeah. Somebody would say, that's an overreach. Now, yeah. somebody could say, well, they're bad people, though, mm -hmm. because they're sick, and mm -hmm. their sickness will spread to other people mm -hmm. and get us all sick. And then mm -hmm. my life is in danger because they're sick, so let's kill them. And we would say, that's too much. Mm -hmm. That's too much. Why? Why is it too much? They're sick. Because there is the potential that they can recover. Yeah. Have any of us recovered? Mm -hmm. I'm recovering from patriarchy since y'all go kill me because I'm not a perfect feminist yet. Wow. Like, I mean. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what I'm hearing you say is that, yes, there are lenses and perspectives that we need to address and that are not okay. For sure. It, it, we, we can name that it's evil to be a racist. Yes. To to embrace whiteness to the degree that you are excluding people based on them not being white. Mm -hmm. But I also hear you saying that we're all on a journey. Um, you know, it was actually Linda Sarsour when we were taping mm -hmm. The Belonging Thing that was one of the first people to talk to me about this idea that we oppose darkness and evil. Mm -hmm. um, there are people who hold evil ideologies, but mm -hmm. technically the enemy of justice is evil and injustice. Mm -hmm. the, the ideas, not necessarily just the people, but the ideas. And I really think that's an important way to move forward if, if you're going to be a person who's righteous. Well, and, and I mean, what I think history has taught us too is that everybody won't be converted. Right. Right. Some people are so committed, sick, diseased, depending on how you see it, what language you use, to some of these dangerous ideas of racism and patriarchy and violence and xenophobia that they are going to carry in that way into the grave, mm. right? Mm. I think what we have to wrestle with, and I don't have all the answers. I'm not saying we got to go hug the whole thing out. I don't have all the answers. Right, right. What I'm wrestling with, though, is I want to figure out how do I live into the values that I hold in relationship to these kind of people. Mm -hmm. I don't want to become them. Mm. I, I, that, that's not on the table for me. Mm. Um, I'm, a, I'm a student of Dr. King, and, and I'm a student of, of that kind of nonviolent practice. Um, I'm not a pacifist. You know, so if you come up and try to hit one of my daughters, I am going to try to whoop your ass. Right? <laughs> so I'm, not a, I'm not a pacifist. Right. I might not be able to. You might be able to get the best of me. But I'm, I'm, I'm not going to just stand by there. So I don't have, like, some perfect theory, but I, I do want to figure out how to not lose the notion that this is another human being. So when I look at the Trumpers, mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. I look at these folks as, like, many of them racist violent, uh, Christian <laughs> human beings who are, I believe, on the wrong side of history right. and the wrong side of the present. Now, the question is, what does it mean for us to change the systems and structures to make them more fair and reduce the level of harm that these folks are able to legislate and activate? Mm -hmm while at the same time me not getting to the point in my anger, pain, and frustration that I am willing to be complicit in the genocide of them. Mm. Yeah. So that's just a place for me. When I think about my, my call for belonging is really about what is the work that we need to do so that we don't ourselves become the new 
expression of violence. And I know there's many that's like, oh, that's the man. Well, that ain't rooted in no historical political theory. Woo, woo, woo. Cool. I ain't trying to save everybody. Like, right. I ain't on that fundamentalist tip. No, right. I'm not exactly. on that evangelism tip exactly. no more. So if it ain't the message for you, cool. Turn yeah. me off. Yeah. I'm not your dude. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> at a certain level, we have to be okay with the fact that there is, there are people who will not come on the journey with us. Yeah. There are some people who even, there were people that didn't leave Babylon. There were Jews that didn't leave Babylon to go back. Mm -hmm. In fact, most, I've seen scholars that said most didn't. Interesting. So it is, it is true that people have their own individual ways of thinking and being and, and, and they're not necessarily bad people for not following the direction that I want to go in. We we kind of look back, especially white folks, white Christians, when we're talking about the civil rights movement, mm -hmm. we'll look back at Dr. King and Malcolm X. One of those is good and the other is bad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think we can do that. No. We, we, we needed the work of Dr. King as well as we needed the work of Malcolm X, and we needed the work of the Black Panthers, mm -hmm. and we needed all the work that was Deacons done during that time. And yeah, poor and we, exactly. Yeah. We needed all of those. So to to take any one of those and say this is the way, that's it, right. it's just it that's never been the, the way forward. Well, you know something that you know my brother, you know, mentioned again because because he's been a big part of helping my own formation over the last 10 years. And he was, you know, out ahead of the journey that I was on and I was able to kind of get behind him. And I, I say that because I think what helps some of us get on the journey is people need to see other people that look like them and mm -hmm. remind them of themselves. Mm -hmm. And if they can see them stepping out, then it helps people step out in ways. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's something that he always talks about, which is like, we all need to have these parallel tracks. You know what I'm saying? That, mm -hmm. that everybody, uh, doesn't need to do the the same thing, um, but we all got something that we need to be doing. And so, hmm. you know, I mean, I think, uh, um, you know, this there is a lot of work that needs to happen in white evangelicalism. Um, I think it's up for debate whether it's actually a dead ideology, you know, um, up for debate is a nice way of saying that. Hey, man. Yeah, I'm, just, I'm just saying that for all the you know, white evangelical losers that's, that's holding on to the, to the, the old rugged cross. But, you know, I, I think, you know, all, all ideologies and philosophies, religious orientations, none of them have been forever. Mm. I would argue, you know, yeah. this might be heretical for some folks, that none of them will be forever. Right. Um, you know, for me, the only thing that is forever is God and the ways in which we can understand God being revealed over the course of time, right. which, which changes. So, um, yeah, I mean that's absolutely true. That's that's any person that would argue with that is just has hasn't done their homework. Yeah. I mean, Jesus essentially, according to the writers of Scripture, left and said, "I'll be right back." Right. And now here we are, thousands of years later. That's right. So. They had to change, and we've had to change the way we view right back, the way we view God, the way we view the divine. It's always constantly evolving, and some people ha yeah. are, are better with that than others. But you know, people have a hard time with that. Yeah, well, and and I think you know, um, when, you know, like that notion of changing and and how we see it, like you know. What, what is woke now wasn't woke 10 years ago. Exactly. Wasn't woke 50 years ago. Yeah. Wasn't woke 200 years ago. I mean, there was a time when imagining that, that 
African human beings would not be enslaved was a radical idea. Man. There were some people who just wanted a better version of slavery. Wow. Right? So so this thing is very relative. And, and so I think we got to hold our truths, um, hold them dearly, mm -hmm. but not hold them so tightly that we have no room for growth yeah. or progress. And so it's like, you know, I heard, um, I was in a meeting the other day and somebody was saying they were listening to a podcast about, uh, um, it was a, a FBI negotiator or something. In any case, he was saying that, um, they asked him, well, you know, about compromise. And one of the things he was saying is, he said, you know, I don't feel that changing your point of view is about always about compromise. Mm. He was like, you know, that frame suggests that you know everything that should be known. And if you're going to compromise, you're going to give up some of what you know in order to connect with this other person. Like you, like you have all the truth you need. Maybe if we operated from an orientation that I don't have all the truth I need, mm. and the more that I'm engaging with other people and getting new stories, mm. that should change my mind. Mm -hmm. And so I might talk very passionately in this year about this topic, but then get new stories, yeah. new experiences yeah. that, that cause me to change my mind. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I think we, we need to stay passionate. You know, we need to stay turned up. Um, but I hope we can do it in a way that builds a wider circle of human concern rather than a smaller one. Yeah, man. So it's Black History Month, and when yeah. I heard you speak at Michael's uh, church, shout out to Michael McBride, who was, I think, episode, whatever episode he was, but yeah. I've had both. The, I've I call had, him the famous <laughs> <laughs> I've had both brothers on, on the podcast now, but um, you were talking about getting to meet some pretty um, influential and famous people from the civil rights era. So could yeah. you talk about some of the people you met and, and what you learned? Because I remember you said you learned something, and I don't, I, I, was it Fannie Lou? No, it was uh, Miss Minnie Jean Brown. Miss Minnie Jean Brown. You said you learned something from her, and I was like, I, I, I was so blown away by just the conversation you had with her. So could you talk about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we were sitting in this room. Again, this was... This is one of those notions where I was tagging along with the famous Dr. <laughs> Michael McBride. Um, but uh, yeah, we were we were there with with some of the contemporaries for Dr. King and Clarence Johnson, who used to be uh, Dr. King's lawyer, pulled together, um, you know, a, a group of their uh, contemporaries. He said he had the dream, no pun intended. Mm -hmm. um, and he said mm -hmm. Martin came to him in his dream and said, pull everybody together. Um, this is going to be the last time we're all, you know, together like this. So mm. he was there and um, um, Ambassador Andrew Young was mm. there and mm. Joan Baez and wow. Bob and Janet Moses. And, you know, a lot of these giants that we've read yeah. books about and, wow, and watched what a room them in these videos, right? And, uh, you know, they're, they're referencing us as the kids, you know. <laughs> so you're sitting here with these 80-year-old people who, um, wow. it, it was deep. I mean, I, I remember... You know, Bob Moses opened up the space by, he was playing Sweet Honey and the Rock music, then he turned it off, and he started reciting the preamble to the Constitution. Wow. I don't even know the preamble to that. I, I don't know either. we the people of these United States. That's it. That's as it. far as I go. Right. As he was saying it, uh, Miss Minnie Jean Brown, who was sitting next to him, she started silently under her voice reciting it. Man. I looked up, saw Janet Moses doing it. I saw Andrew Young doing it. This was this deep moment, right? Mm -hmm. I'm like, these people, like, there was a level of 
discipline in relationship to to this whole story in America and and belonging and, and getting rid of racism and creating something new and they all now saw themselves not as civil rights people but as human rights mm. activists. So I'm just watching all of this um, and, I, and I remember, you know, uh, Brother Bob said, you know, uh, you all's challenge is to expand the definition of we. Wow. He didn't say tear down white supremacy, which we need to do. He didn't say undo racism. He said, expand the definition of we. And he said, you guys, the room full of young black activists. That this is you all's work. He said, this was our work. What we did in the 50s and 60s was about expanding who was included in the we. Mm. So, chipping mm. off that. So then we started getting into a discussion. You know, they said that we could all ask a question. So, you know, I'm trying to be all smart and figure out how to <laughs> ask two questions and one question. So I asked Ms. Ms. Brown, I said, you know, uh, uh, I have two questions. You know, I'm breaking the rules, patriarchy, don't mm -hmm. break from me. Yeah, yeah. I'm, in, I'm on the journey. Yeah. I said two questions. One, I said, um, I, you know, do you believe that nonviolence can uh, work um, as a, uh, no, 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 that's, that's not the first question. First question I asked her was, did integration work? Mm. I said, because I'm looking at you all, and I know that you moved towards integration, but then all the black folks wanted to go participate with the white institutions, and then we lost all of our businesses and our hospitals, et cetera. So did integration work? And if you could do it all over, how would you do it differently? Mm. First question. Mm. Second question. She never answered the first question. That's what I get for <laughs> answering two questions. Second question. I said, and I know you all use nonviolence as a tactic to bring about social change, believing if you were nonviolent, you would engender the empathy of the white moderate and bring them over to your side. I said, but we're living in a culture where people are desensitized by violence. Do you believe that nonviolence can still work as a tactic to bring about social change? She starts waving her hands to me. Mm. And she was like, did, did I hear you say nonviolence as a tactic? And I was like, yeah, it's it's so and so forth. She was like, so, so what? Y'all y'all just gonna start getting guns and shooting people? I said, no, no, no. She was like, you you saying nonviolence as a tactic? And I was like, and she was like, you don't understand our movement. Wow. Later on, I found her and got some time. And I was like, you know, Miss Finishing Brown. I was like, I, when I was asking a question, I said I wasn't like advocating violence. I said I've just been trying to figure out like, can nonviolence work? She said, listen, young brethren. She said, I grew up in Arkansas. Mm. She was like, I grew up seeing black men swing from trees mm. and, and hearing and seeing about lynchings and that threat always being there. She said, nonviolence for us wasn't a tactic. Nonviolence was how we saved ourselves. Wow. She said, if we wanted to create peace in the world, we had to become peace. Wow. So yes, we use nonviolence tactically in our demonstrations. She said, but we had to become the very thing that we wanted to create in the world. That was a deep thing to me. Man. Yeah, man. That's a deep thing to me in this old 80-year-old black woman who has problems in her legs to this day from young white people kicking her in the back of her Achilles mm. when she was walking into Central High School or whatever the name of that school was. I think it was Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas. Mm. She still carries the wounds in her physical body and yet is telling me that... I need to become the thing. Bob Moses is saying you need to expand the definition of we. Mm. And so is my answer to these elders, oh, y'all just old, y'all don't get it. 
Really? We that woke? <laughs> really? Okay. Okay, we, we walking around in Ubers and Lyfts and, and we mad about, and rightfully so, about distanced white racism. Not, not all of us dealing with everyday explicit in your face, nigger get off the mm-hmm. corner. Mm-hmm. And they, they reach down into a deep spiritual well to respond to that. I just think in our moment, our answer can't be um, shallow. Man, I mean, you. that's so much. It's so rich, so much to, to process and think through. I mean, when you start digging into black history mm-hmm. and and realizing a couple of things. One, um, a lot of the history we're talking about ain't, is not ancient history. It ain't, man. When you can sit down and have a conversation with people who lived it, you know, that has a dramatic impact on you. And, and you're right. I mean, who among us today has their story? Mm. You know, what, what I, I think about, I think it was Paul or somebody that wrote, you had, you have not yet resisted unto blood. Mm. You know, when mm. people have resisted unto blood, yeah. sweat and tears, and, mm. and they have felt the pain of a, a billy club, you know, yeah. those folks should come to the front of the line of the people we listen to, especially if we have the gift of them still being alive for us to listen to. You yeah, know? You're right. Yeah. I mean, I, I lead these journeys throughout the South. I'm going to do one in March. Matter of fact, if I can get on your calendar, you should come with us. Yeah. Um, we're going to go down to Selma, Montgomery, and Birmingham. Oh, man. And, and uh, one of the folks that I met out there when I was putting the trip together a couple of years ago is one of the elders who was on the Edmund Pettus Bridge on Bloody Sunday morning. And so I took a group of folks there in September um, to explore and learn from, in a time of deep othering in our country in the 50s and 60s, how did these people respond with a commitment to belonging and bridging across difference? Wow. Right? So that, that was what we were trying to learn. We sit there with this 80-something-year-old brother who can barely fully stand, and he points to this scar. I got the picture. I'll show you. And, and you can share it. You can put mm-hmm. it on, on the website. People mm-hmm. can see it. He's got this scar in the middle of his head. He says, I got this on Bloody Sunday. He said, when a police officer struck me in the head with his billy club and split my head open. Mm. And he and he went on to tell more stories. I mean, it was stuff I learned about that story that I didn't know about, about that they chased him off the bridge and chased him all the way back to Brown Chapel, that the police ran up into the church. Wow. Where Malcolm had just spoke a couple nights before and where they started the march from. And, and he said, um, um, uh, he said, but before y'all leave here, I don't want you to leave off of here talking about the scar in my head. He's got a very faint voice. Mm-hmm. He said, if you're going to leave here, he said, what we learned, if anything, through our movement was how do we hold love in our hearts as a power to change this country? That's what I want you to lead this bridge with. So I'm sitting there, I'm sitting there, bro, in deep contradiction, because I'm looking at the scar. Yeah. And I'm like, somebody need to be held accountable. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But I'm also hearing this elder, I think, give me a gift. Yeah, for sure. Because he's he's telling me something that maybe I won't fully be able to appreciate until I'm 80. Mm. Now, if there's any way that we could tap into it while we 40. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How might that change the next 20 years? Yeah. I'm not saying be soft on the racist and all of that. I'm all about the turn up for turn up sake. But there's something when he said, don't leave off this bridge just with my scar. Wow. 
If you're also not going to leave around my call for y'all to think about what it means for you to carry love in your heart as a way to change things. Wow. Yeah, that there's there's no better place to leave off than right there. Mm-hmm. How do we figure out how to hold love in our hearts in the midst of a world that's becoming more and more loud with violence yeah. and hatred and othering and to learn as a people to hold love in our hearts in the midst of that requires a strength that only someone who's lived through it can pass on to us. Mm-hmm. So, man, thanks for sharing those stories, man. Thanks Ooh. for being on the podcast. Hey, folks, you can uh, stay in touch with, with Ben. I'm going to put all his info, his social media, his website in uh, in the show notes. Thank you all for listening. Thanks to Comfort Fit for the music. I want to thank you for sharing, reviewing, and rating the podcast. And thank you for being a part of us contending for a better world together, one conversation at a time. <laughs>